All right, good morning. We have some new faces. You are here. I said this last week, but it's more true this week. If you're visiting, you are here on the last sermon of Jonah, right? So this is the, uh, but this is the best one, I promise. That's the goal. Just kidding. Uh, Jonah, every week we've been going through, it turned out to be nine sermons. When I chose Jonah, I thought it's four chapters. It'll be four weeks, and then I'll be on sabbatical. Uh, but looking at it right away, I realized, no, let's do four weeks before and four weeks after. I did add a week on the front end. I know how to do math. And so here's kind of how we separated it. Jonah runs from God. So the first two chapters really highlight how Jonah hears a command from God and runs from God, and God rescues him, right, with a fish. Call students, you all heard of the fish, right? We all know Jonah. That's, but that was like one little verse or two little verses. The next two chapters, Jonah runs from God and God captures him. Okay? It's a little bit of a play on words. Obviously, he obeys God in chapter 3. He goes into Nineveh. He preaches. But he doesn't want them to repent. He wants God to destroy them. It's the elder brother of the prodigal son story. The first two chapters are the younger brother. He's going to run. But the elder brother side of him finally says, okay, I'll obey you, God. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches an eight-word sermon and it works and he's upset. In fact, last week we saw how exceedingly angry he was. And we began to discuss uh, this idea of heart idolatry. And for Jonah, for him, it was exposed that he wanted to see God smite this entire people because they are his enemy. And we realize that we have heart idols. And last week we started unpacking the process of uncovering those idols, one of which is to pray and even engage angrily at times with God. This week we're going to see God's response. Um, and so we'll look at the entirety of chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. But understand what's happening is he's noticed or learned that God is relenting from disaster. And now we're going to see this conversation between Jonah and God. This week it's going to be God's conversation with Jonah, God speaking. So uh, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that is, that he relented, right? And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And just to pause, we talked about how when our idols are exposed and we realize they will not support us like we hope they will, things like riches, um, gifting, anything you're putting all your hope in, the feeling is like death. You feel like you would rather die than give up that idol. Verse 4, and the Lord said, and this is really where we're going to begin this morning, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you pursue us, you love us, and you offer us your son, Jesus. I pray this morning, as we study this last chapter of Jonah, we will see your grace and your mercy applied to our lives. Amen. So when I started the series, I had a, a little book that I read to the congregation, but none of the college students were here, so I wanted to do it again, but I, I couldn't find the book. That's why I ran out. Runaway Bunny. Who knows Runaway Bunny? So you all know it. Runaway Bunny uh, is the book by the same lady who did uh, Jump the Cow Jump. What's that called? Good Night Moon. That's why you want to prepare better than that. Runaway bunny is a little, it's awkward. It's a little baby bunny saying to its mother, I am going to run away and I'm going to go. And and every little page is a a distance this bunny's going to go. And in each turn, the mother bunny says, well, I will come after you. I will become a ship and, and sail after you or the wind that blows the boat or I'll become the mountain you're climbing on. And it's this beautiful picture of the pursuit of a loving mother. And as you read through Jonah, and just as long as we've been going through it, you begin to just get, become impressed with the fact that God loves his people. God loves Jonah. And God loves you. But you're also amazed, I hope, and we'll see, at the inability of Jonah to see that love. And I think we all struggle to really rest in the love the Father has for us. And so here's a bold claim. All of your heart idols, all the things you turn to, to find life, stem from your unbelief that God loves you, right? That's, the, that's where it starts. And so what happens is we begin to think, if it's going to happen, I've got to take over. And we, and we start turning to things in our lives, right? We're going to talk about the plant. This week, we jokingly talked about the plant in our house. What is your plant, right? What is the thing that gives you life, that you, that you essentially make living, right? There's a plant that has no life to it. And Jonah, we're going to see in this passage, finds so much joy in that thing, but he's lost his joy in the Father. He's lost his joy in his relationship with God. So this morning, we're going to see that process. We're going to continue our discussion. Last week, it was Jonah getting angry and praying and uncovering theological errors. But this week, we're going to find God, and we're going to look at three things. Number one, God does something very simple. He engages Jonah as a person. So we'll talk about point one. Point two, he reveals himself to Jonah. And finally, point three will be simply, he explains the magnitude of his love for Jonah. So point one, uh, God turns to Jonah as a person. I'm struck by verse four. Do you do well to be angry? 
Have you ever had an experience maybe where you yelled at a parent or something and you expected wrath and they just said something like this, like just this calm, do you do well to be angry? It's a great question. This is God of the universe, right? Jonah has, in chapter one, ran from God. God has rescued him with a fish, protected him. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prays a repentant prayer, which many commentators compare to conversion. And now he's been vomited up on a shore. He's come into Nineveh, preached the gospel, and here he's wrestling with God. And the point is, we always will be wrestling with God if we're honest. This side of heaven, we're going to be wrestling with God. And the question God asked John is, do you do well to be angry? Do you hear the questions of God? Questions are all through the Bible. Uh, When Hagar runs away from Sarah and from Abraham, God, the the angel of the Lord finds her and he asks a question. He knows the answer to. Where are you going? Where have you come from? And where are you going? It's a question, right? Questions are all through the Bible. Uh, One man, Michael Polanyi, says this, in order for us to doubt anything at the moment we do, we simultaneously put our trust in something else. The moment you doubt something, you're necessarily placing your trust in something else. Now, the word doubt can have a negative connotation, but I'm going to use it positively. When we hear a question, do you do well to be angry, you should doubt like when God says, is this good that you're angry or that you're following whatever pursuit or that you're longing for something apart from me? It's a great question. And he's inviting you to doubt yourself, right? The question is drawing you out. You're being invited into the process. In Psalm 42, uh, we, we are told, you know, the psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, unpacks the concept that even questions to ourselves are very helpful. It's good to actually ask yourself, why? Paying attention to your feelings, but asking these hard questions. Why am I upset? Why am I downcast? Why am I depressed? Why am I so bothered by this? Questions get to the heart of of our, really, our rebellion to God. And so here's God walking into this relationship with Jonah, and he's asking this amazing question. Later, Jonah answers, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And it's showing us again that you can have this personal relationship with God. It's not just this one-sided thing. But we are so good at one-sided relationships. Remember the movie Castaway? If you haven't seen it, I feel like I'm talking to two groups you all probably saw Castaway. Have any of you even heard of Castaway? Okay. I feel like I'm talking to two groups. You all have seen Castaway. Have you even heard of it? Tom Hanks, plane crash. This is a quick illustration. Desert island, lonely. What does he do? He gets Wilson, the volleyball, and he makes a hand mark, and he turns it into a person, and he talks to Wilson, and he treats it like a person. Human beings are made in the image of God, and we can give, like we can give life to inanimate objects, right? And we do it all the time. That's what our idols are. But God is not wanting to be inanimate. He wants to speak to you. He wants to use his words, his scripture. And so point one is simply, are we listening into the questions he asks? Are we even 
paying attention that he's real and pursuing us. Point two now is going to be this. He reveals himself uh, to Jonah, and I think the most be- what, just the ending of Jonah is, should be more popular than the fish. This plant, right? So look at ver- if you have your Bibles, look at verse five. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, I've been sort of wrestling with the time structure of this, of this work. Um, you could probably do an entire like, study on just, okay, so Jonah, in, in verse 10, is told, he, we're told, knew that God relented of disaster. So remember, God gave them 40 days. Jonah goes into the city. It's a three days journey. But in chapter three, we're told he only goes one day in. And he proclaims the eight-word prophecy. And Nineveh just like wildfire repents all the way to the king. They do all of this repenting. Jonah probably leaves and he's going to just camp out for 40 days, I think. This is my take. Now, in other words, I think the sequencing is in the Hebrew uh, form of writing, they often give you the big picture and then they give you the detail. I think he removes himself for 40 days gets the popcorn out, and can't wait to see how God's going to just deliver his wrath. That's what he wants. Like front row seats. Except it doesn't happen. And so he's exceedingly angry. In the meantime, we have this plant that pops up overnight, and God brings it to Jonah, provides this shade, right? And then Jonah finds it to be exceedingly Amazing, like he's exceedingly happy. And then the plant goes away. So what God is doing is he's beginning to show Jonah, you're not in charge. He's beginning to give him information. You're not the one in control. Let me tell you how this works. Our natural disposition is to think we are in charge of our lives. I was listening to uh, NPR, it's been many years ago. I still listen to NPR occasionally. For those of you that are conservatives, I do it very mildly for those of you that are Liberals, I love NPR. Um, there's a, there was a, 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 one of these great stories on, on how Omaha or Lincoln became a hotbed for like just immigrants were coming in and coming in. And so the point is they were analyzing the difference between the, the, the first generation in America and their work ethic, the second generation, their children who are watching them do two or three jobs while going to the public schools and being educated, and then the third generation who might not even remember of the sacrifices. And, and this is the first time I'd ever heard the quote from Yogi Berra that just stuck in my mind, but we're, he, he said, and this, this interviewer said, we're all born on third base, right? We, we're born on third base, but we think we hit a triple. And, and the first generation, and even the second generation immigrant doesn't realize that. They, they think they're born... Like, they think everything's a gift. It's been hard work. But many of us in our Christianity have just kind of stumbled in it. We're on third base, and we look around at our gifting. We look around at our um, upbringing. We look around at, at all the blessings that God pours out. And it's very easy in this environment we're in, that is America or Oklahoma or Stillwater, whatever the environment you want to focus on, to be born on third base, but we think we hit the triple. And that's Jonah's struggle. And so God has brought him this amazing illustration to wake him up. But part of being woken up is not just 
um, the plant, it's reminding him of all the ways God has organized this entire journey. I'm not sure how Jonah would have written this four-chapter letter had he not had this fourth chapter in this conversation. But if you go all the way back, God appoints wind, right? So the storm comes up. And then do you remember Jonah sits down, they cast lots. I don't know what that means, right? But they did it, and the lot fell on Jonah. So more supernatural influence. Jonah's thrown overboard at his request, and a God appoints a fish to not only swallow him, but to somehow not like digest him for three days and then to vomit him up safely on shore three days later. And we're going to talk about it later, but all the way in the New Testament, Jesus says the sign of Jonah, which means to Nineveh, just like Jonah was assigned to Nineveh in the belly of the fish, somehow that story had to happen and it probably got to Nineveh before Jonah did. You know, the rumor of this fish and this throwing up and all that. So when Jonah walks up, whether he's got just fish slime all over him or whether the story has preceded him or not, the Ninevites repent. And then God is now showing us that he's going to appoint a plant to grow up in one night. And then he's going to appoint a worm. And then he's going to appoint a son to take out. Do you see God is sovereign? And we think of supernatural as being something you might watch on a TV show, some weird channel you shouldn't, you know, some, you know, 300 level channel. The supernatural, you know what I mean? Like paranormal shows. Anyone get what I'm trying to say? A few of you got puzzled. You know those channels that have like the paranormal? That's not what supernatural is. Supernatural is the fact that no matter what you think is happening all around you, God is always in charge. God is always at work. And I think one of the most dangerous things we can do spiritually is to be born on third thinking we hit the triple. And so Jonah is going before God and God is giving him this illustration of this plant. And we're going to look at what the illustration points to. But my, my, my question is, are you interpreting your life this way? Are you aware that God is sovereignly working in your life? Now, I want to give one, one slight caveat. Um, there's a great book I recommend. If you're kind of like, what would be a good theological book? Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I had a professor that said you should read that every year. I don't think I've even read it once since he made the suggestion. But every year I've made the goal of reading it. It's great. It's a good book. I've read it once or twice though. Read it. There's a chapter in the middle on wisdom literature. I've talked about this before where he talks about how God is like the York signal station. J.I. Packer loves trains. He was, he was raised in England, watched trains all his life. And he said as a kid, he would watch the trains coming in and he would try to guess near the, near the stations what the train was going to do on the track as it either came in or as it left. But it would always do something slightly different than he thought he could predict. And as an adult, he, and once he became a little more known through his uh, ministry, he was invited inside the York signal station. And he said there on the wall was this, this was before computers, was this huge map of the entire train yard with lights showing exactly where the trains were going. And his point is, outside of that station, which is where we live, we can't know the mind of God. So the call of Jonah is not that we would try to interpret everything as to why God is doing it, but rather 
that we would recognize that everything that's happening in our lives is orchestrated by God and it's for his glory. Right? Romans 8, 28 famously says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I think what happens is when we're not confident that God loves us, we begin to turn to something else to find our definition, to find our life. And those are the things that can become idols, right? And I think part of the problem is if we think we are somehow in charge of our life, we're the reason we're on third or we're the reason we're out, then we're going to begin to put too much weight on who we are, right? How good am I at batting using the baseball theme? How good am I at education? How, how, how are my looks? How, how am I received by people? Like, what are the things you're leaning toward? What are the things that you really kind of always have in your back pocket, that sort of that plan B feeling, you know? Well, at least I have this. You know, I remember as a kid always thinking, well, at least I've got grandma who loves me. Anyone do that? Um, what, is your, what are the things you're sort of waiting on, putting your weight in? What are your plants, right? What are the things that bring you exceeding joy? I would love to just start hearing answers. I would love that, but it, wouldn't, it would take too long. Is it entertainment, um, TV shows? Is it, is it days off, the weekend? Is it getting that grade? You know, you get that, you're waiting to find out what was your exam grade. Is it getting that person to like you? The hits on Instagram, there's something addicting about that, right? Instagram and the hits. Like, is it called hits? Likes. I'm sorry, I heard murmur right here. MySpace. We have so many things, and it's not one, it's many things that we turn to to feel good. And God is saying, I want you to feel good because of, our, because of me. I want to just draw your attention. We sing these songs. And I just want to draw your attention to two things we sang this morning. The first is John Newton's, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And in it, John Newton has asked, right? And what we find is all of these circumstances have driven him to just difficulty. And he trembles and he says, Why, will you pursue this worm, thy worm to death? And God replies, I answer prayers this way. Inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. God is pursuing you like the mother bunny, but not just to be your God. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing. But your goodness and your freedom and your, um, just your joy comes when you have that relationship with God. We also sang, um, satisfied, all my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring. And then the, the, the chorus, hallelujah, he, God, has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his blood I now am saved. The question I want to ask you as we move into our last thought this morning is, do you even believe intellectually I, I get it that in our actual practical daily moments, we don't often feel this way, but do you at least believe in your mind that Jesus could satisfy all your longings? To be a Christian, that needs to be our belief. I mean, that, 
You're not going to lose your salvation if, if we're going to work on that. But I'm saying the goal for Christians would be to go from just thinking this as a religion, like Jonah was doing as the older brother, to being a captured child of the living God who actually th- realized God provides all of my satisfaction. Where is that in our passage? We're going to now unpack this plant a little bit more. It's a little bit like a riddle. God has provided, uh, there's a lot of debate on what kind of plant. I heard castor oil. You can talk to Thomas. Is it not, you wouldn't go with that? I don't know. It's some sort of plant that Jonah really, really likes. Do we have anybody that likes plants? And you know, some people love to have plants. I mean, you know, we, uh, I think Jonah loved this plant, but mostly because it provided shade, right? It's it's one of the realities of the idols in our lives, and, I'm, and I want to make note of this. The idols are good things. The plant's a good thing. God's not mad at Jonah for liking the plant. God's not mad at Jonah for liking it exceedingly. God just simply doesn't want him to like the plant more than God. He wants, to, he wants you to like your things, the blessings in your life, through him, knowing he provided them and for his glory. So Jonah has this plant, And then God takes the plant away. Not to be mean. I mean, it looks mean. But to make a point. And I've always read that to be, here's the point. Aren't I allowed to love Nineveh? Right? Isn't that the point? You liked that plant. You did nothing. It grew. Now I want you to know, here's Nineveh, and I love Nineveh. However, God actually did make Nineveh. Like, right, he made the plant and he made Nineveh. And so for God to like Nineveh is a little bit shocking for us. It's hard to understand. Like, are you, like, you love this plant, Jonah, so God simply doesn't destroy Nineveh. But what God's saying is he has exceeding joy over Nineveh. How do you feel about that? Nineveh is an evil, evil place right? And yet God has exceeding love for them. Do you think God could then also love you like he loves Nineveh or more so as his child? Last week we saw Jonah quote Exodus 34. So we're going to try to figure out how God can do this kind of love. In Exodus 34, Moses is in a cleft of a rock. God passes by him. Moses only sees his backside And in the process, God says this about his own character. He says, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jonah didn't get that far in his quote. Okay, listen to what Jonah says in verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Okay, Jonah has pretty good theology. If you go back to the story in Exodus, listen to what else God says. It's very, uh, it's, I can see why Jonah didn't want to mention it. Okay, so God has just said, I will forgive iniquity and transgressions, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Yikes, right? Like, so Jonah has developed this theology where he conveniently drops that because Moses sinned. Moses broke the Ten Commandments. Israel sinned. They had just made a golden calf. Moses was angry, breaks the thing. They, they have to go out and like stab a lot of people. It's a really bad thing. And then God graciously brings Moses back up and Moses has a new set of, of tablets made and God reveals himself and Mo, Moses comes off the mountain glowing. Who wants to talk about this generational to generation to generation? We don't want that, right? Do you? So we'll just, kind of, we'll just kind of restructure our theology and leave out this harshness of God. Well, I think what we know as we look at the book of Jonah is that Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. And God does have to punish sin, right? And I think so often our theology of self-effort and, and self-reliance stems from the fact that we don't know what to do with the fact that our Jonah... Jesus went outside the city, but rather than waiting for you and I to be destroyed, he went out to hang on a cross to take all of your sin and your shame and put it on him, that you have no condemnation, that you are free, but not because God just wipes the slate clean, he had to punish his own son. Jesus himself became our sin for us. That's the ruthlessness and the passion that, Jesus ha- that God has in pursuing. So as I was thinking about the runaway bunny and the mother, I had another illustration that came to my mind. You know the movie Taken? It's a, I mean, don't watch it. It's the Liam Neeson movie. His daughter is kidnapped. Right, I'm just going to read the famous line from Taken. Liam Neeson's kind of this washed up dad. He used to have some sort of special ops background, but now he's like a bodyguard for like famous singer. And anyway, his daughter goes to Europe and to his worst fear, she's kidnapped. And he, she calls him from her cell phone, daddy. And the, the kidnappers get on the phone and you all know the quote, right? Like it's, a, it's a memorizable. I'm going to read it to you and you may wince a little bit, but here's Liam Neeson's uh, quote to this, this kidnapper. I don't know who you are. I can't do his accent by the way. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. And spoiler alert, that's what happens. (laughs) Why would I bring that up here? That is God's message in the garden to Satan. I will find you. He will come and crush your head. Go for it. You can try all your tricks, bite his little ankle, do all your stuff, but one day, someday, he will crush your head. And that's our Savior. He has done that for us. I'm pretty sure that the daughter and and the dad in that movie got along very well because there were like 22 sequels. I never saw one of them. When we realize Jesus loves us to the point of not only pursuing Satan by crushing his head, but by becoming our very sin for us on a cross, that 
that goes so far beyond anything Runaway Bunny could ever do. That's how much your Savior, Savior loves you. So when you read Jonah and you come to the ending, you'll notice it just kind of drops off, right? God explains why he had pity for Nineveh, why he cared for Nineveh, but it just drops off. And my question to you is this, what are you going to do with that ending? We know what Jonah did, we think. It seems like he went and wrote this down and prophesied to Israel and explained what had happened. But we're not told that for sure. What is your ending going to be? The series has come to an end. It's the most abrupt ending of any book in the Bible. And there's this sort of this like, what next? And my prayer for you is that you'll leave even today and begin to identify the things that take your delight away from Jesus. He loves you. He is good. He will satisfy your longings. The idea is not to get rid of all the fun in your life. The idea is that by pursuing Jesus first, knowing his love for you, all the things he wants you to have, you'll enjoy in him and through him. But if you don't do that, those things will crush you. Those things will let you down. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to show us the idols of our heart and give us the freedom you gave Jonah to wrestle because we really do think that all of the things that bring us joy and pleasure are more important than you. And Lord, it's not until we really come face to face with some disaster often that we turn to you. But as Shane even prayed this morning, Lord, every week we come into this uh, service and hopefully every day we come before your throne recognizing yet again, yet again the blood of Christ is what we need. Yet again we have sinned. And Lord, our deepest longing, my prayer, is that we would find you to be all of our joy. Lord, we know it's a process. We know this side of heaven, it will never be full. But I pray that that would be the trajectory that everyone here is on who knows you. And Lord, for those in this room who don't acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, I pray even today they would begin to pray to receive you and to rest in you alone. Lord, we want to see many come to know you, Jesus. We want to see many in this culture and on this campus, Lord, and all across the world confess to follow you. And Lord, I pray you would begin that revival even here at Grace for your glory. Amen.